Good morning and happy Monday. I hope you are having a great start to your week. You are listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Issues of immigration and citizenship continue to be at the forefront of our national conversation. If and when legislation will be passed to provide a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, particularly those brought as children has yet to be seen. While the migration and citizenship rights of child migrants occupies one part of this immigration conversation, international adoptees who are also undocumented have typically been approached as a distinct and separate issue. To discuss more about why this is the case and what might a solution look like for immigration rights, I'm joined by Dr. Kimberly McKee and Tanika Jennings. Dr. McKee is an associate professor in Integrative Religious and Intercultural Studies at Grand Valley State University. She is the author of Disrupting Kinship, Transnational Politics of Korean Adoption in the United States and co-editor of Degrees of Difference, Reflections of Women of Color on Graduate School. Tanika Jennings is an adoptee and immigrant rights advocate who is currently a campaign manager with Adoptees for Justice, a project of NACASEC. Good morning, Dr. McKee and Tanika. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having us. Good morning. Good morning. So great us. to have you here with us, both of you. So let's just jump right in because I know one thing that has been an ongoing conversation among some of the circles and communities that we're a part of is this most recent uh, mainstream depiction of uh, Korean adoptees, undocumented adoptees, undocumented immigrants. And I'm thinking here about Blue Bayou. Now in 2015, just to kind of go back, um, a Korean adoptee's deportation case garnered mainstream attention. So here thinking about Adam Crapser's case. And now most recently with Blue Bayou, we see a fictional account of a Korean adoptee undergoing deportation proceedings um, and adoptee citizenship rights. And Adam's case specifically have resurfaced across news outlets. Now, the issue of adoptee citizenship rights has been ongoing, but I'm wondering what made Adam's case so unique that it brought renewed attention to this issue? And I'm also wondering about this in connection with Blue Bayou specifically. Hi, thanks, Sona. I think I could um, start and then, you know, um, Dr. McKee, I'm sure can share more. Um, just to kind of, you know, say that um, from my perspective, I, I think, um, it's probably more accurate to say that Blue Bayou is a fictionalized account of Adam's story. Um, so I think, you know, I just wanted to share that from my perspective um, that I, I believe that that's the, um, you know, the, the reality um, of that film. Um, then moving that aside um, and going to the second part of your question, um, I think what made Adam's case unique um, and why it brought so much attention to the issue is kind of like multifold. Um, and I think it's part of the reason his case is so compelling that someone would want to make a film out of it. 
um, and why it picked up all the mainstream media. Um, I think Adam's case uh, really goes to point out a lot of the brokenness in our adoption and immigration systems, as well as our, I guess, what people call criminal justice system. I think there's a better way to call it. Uh, and we could debate whether or not that's true justice. Um, but, you know, his, he was just, he was an adoptee who experienced a lot of abuse um, that he didn't ask for um, and then ended up on the wrong side of things and deportation proceedings when that never should have been the case because all intercountry adoptees should have just had citizenship by the very fact that we were adopted by US citizen parents. And so instead of seizing the opportunity to make systemic change and recognize the brokenness of our own systems and injustices there, our government chose to deport Adam and not just Adam, but others like him. And I think for a lot of people in our community as adoptees, like we know the ways that we have felt, um, you know, either supported or invalidated in our own intercountry adoptee experiences, lived experiences and identities. And I think it really just struck a chord for a lot of people that this is sort of like the epitome of injustice that can happen for us to be separated from your children. Um, you know, to have to go through all of those challenges and traumas on top of the family separation that we all experience and separation from our birth countries and cultures um, as a result of our, you know, being involved in the adoption system. Um, and so I think that's why it brought so much attention. I think it was a moment many adoptees recognized as wrong, not just for Adam, but also for themselves and how easily this could have been any of our stories, we say it's like a roll of the dice, um, what kind of family we would have been adopted into. And I've always said and always known Adam's story, the stories of other um, adoptees who've been deported could have easily been my story too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Sanika, I think you bring up a good point that Adam's case, you know, open up this conversation for deportations that have happened, not just in his individual case, but of course, many others as well. Are there official numbers on how many intercountry adoptees have been deported because of citizenship issues? That's a great question. Um, I can start, maybe um, Dr. McKee can add more. Um, we don't have official numbers on those, just like we don't even have official numbers of how many adoptees there are in the US. Um, the US just simply has not really been great at tracking those. So we have numbers based on the, who's contacted us, uh, meaning folks who are working in the space or adjacent. And we know of at least 50 um, deportations of adoptees um, to countries, they're, you know, their birth countries where they don't speak the language, they don't know anyone usually, um, or really have the tools to you know, make a living or survive. Um, but unfortunately, um, our government um, hasn't really been great about tracking those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And now I know I, you know, kind of started this conversation talking about Adam's case, but as you kind of hinted at, Sneeka, there's a much longer history of obviously intercountry adoption to the U.S., but also organizing around adoptee citizenship rights specifically. And Kim, I'm wondering if you could kind of contextualize Adam's case for us within this longer history? I'm happy to. And Tanika, thank you for getting us started today. I think to go back to your initial question though, um, not only thinking about Adam Crafter's story, um, the case of Russell Green um, also garnered attention 
really within the adoption community initially in 2012. So Minnesota-based group AdoptSource developed this campaign um, that included both um, adoptees and adoptive parents, most of them being Korean, around his own uh, deportation uh, experience um, and negotiations uh, with immigration um, and what that looks like. Because similar to Adam Crapser, he also wasn't naturalized as a US citizen. And I think that Tanika really got to the heart of the issue is the fact that this could be any of us who are adopted internationally because adoption is arbitrary, right? And so adoptees are being sent to the United States with sort of under the guise of this humanitarian child-saving rescue rhetoric that so many people want to believe in, that they are helping children. What people don't wanna talk about or recognize is the fact that for some, these homes may not be that better option that everyone likes to pretend adoption is. And I think what um, Adam Crapser's story, Russell Green's story, and the experience of, of countless other adoptees, both of those who have citizenship and both of those who lack, and those who lack citizenship make very clear that not all adoptive families are created equal. Mm -hmm. um, and so when thinking then about and turning to your question that you just asked me in terms of contextualizing this within broader history, it's important to highlight the way in which adoptees entry to the United States was happening simultaneously uh, while the US still had some very racist and exclusionary immigration law. If you think about um, prior to say the 1965 Immigration Act and what that looked like. Mm -hmm. um, Yes, absolutely. And I know we've talked, obviously, we were talking about Korean adoptees, or that's what's bringing us to this conversation. And so I just have to ask, you know, what is Korean adoption significance as we're thinking about international adoption? And then obviously, this question about citizenship as well. Korean adoption is really what popularized international adoption broadly. So international adoption has been has been ongoing. It has been something that has happened since the turn of the 20th century. It has, it, we've seen adoptions specifically thinking about post-World War II um, with the adoption of children from Europe as well as children from Japan. But even prior to that, there were interwar adoptions from Hong Kong, for example. Um, and there were even some adoptions sort of if you go back earlier. But what shifted with Korea was just the sheer number. And so, South Korea has maintained the world's longest running international adoption program. Estimates of how many children have been sent abroad to the West um, fluctuate and go from roughly 180,000 to 200,000. I usually tend to think about it as that higher number because of the way in which adoptions may not necessarily be counted, but also thinking about how adoptions still continuing, right? So it's not like South Korea has stopped. And so, um, when we also think about it in the context of the United States, two thirds of those children were sent to the United States and the primary, um, family, the primary families that were recipients of those children were white families. This is not to say that black families or Asian families or other um, non-white families don't adopt internationally, but the majority of those adopted enter white families. And I think that's really key when thinking too about rhetoric about the family as well as uh, adoption as a humanitarian child-saving act. And so when we think about then Korea's overall significance to US adoption, 
what we're seeing now in terms of the advocacy of international adoptees being uh, overly represented as Korean, um, it's also we have to think about just what those those numbers look like mm -hmm. um, as well. So this is not to discount the advocacy or the work of other transnational adoptees either. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think that's so important to draw out when we think about international adoption in particular, it's often, you know, white families with Asian babies. And that's how it's been portrayed in kind of popular culture. I'm thinking about other representations. And then obviously with this most recent release of Blue Bayou as well. And I think that's important for, you know, what we think of as a transracial international adoptive family, but also how we might mobilize in service of trying to secure adoption citizenship rights as well. Now, uh, Kim, you kind of mentioned briefly about some of the racist and exclusionary immigration policies that were also enacted or at the time that Korean adoption in particular began. Can you talk about why it was that Korean children were seen as separate or outside of some of these existing immigration policies? Well, when we think about some of these, um, when we think about the ways that Korean adoptees entered the United States, I think it's important to think about how um, early film, as well as magazines, helped to humanize war waifs and orphans in ways that we don't see with the humanization of adults. And this is true even today, right? People's heartstrings love infants and toddlers. Uh, Americans sort of feel a yearning to help in ways that we don't with the same people who could be those children's parents or guardians or even siblings, right? And so um, what we're seeing too is this deep humanitarian investment and how that's also tied to a Cold War politic in terms of spreading US democracy abroad. And so in doing so, folks somehow didn't see or didn't want to acknowledge the contradictions because at the time, if you're looking at the exclusionary laws um, shaping US immigration history, I mean, this is why, you know, when in the, in the existence of sort of this entire pandemic and the rise of anti-Asian hate, um, Asian American studies scholars and Asian American activists have been really calling attention to the ways US immigration policy has been founded on anti-Asian exclusion. Um, and so that's what makes the movement of Korean children into the United States vis-a-vis -vis adoption so significant because of the way in which it ran contra to how we understand um, Asian immigrants broadly in this country. So adoptees were seen as exceptions and as acceptable immigrants um, in ways where we still had quota systems, where we still had defined a racial category of Asian that was excluding most, if not all, um, people from sort of Asia, broadly speaking. Yes, absolutely. And I think you keyed in on something um, there when you said, you know, these Asian children were seen as acceptable immigrants um, versus their adult counterparts and really seeing that distinction. And I think that's something that is coming up again now as we see citizenship rights advocacy for adoptees specifically who are no longer children and no longer kind of pulling at the heartstrings of Americans, but now seen as adults 
seen as simply undocumented immigrants who you know, should not be in the nation at all. And I think that's what we see playing out in a lot of ways through this film, but also through immigration policy and how um, politicians you know, are hesitant to be on board with something like an adoptee citizenship rights act. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we are here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Kimberly McKee and Tanika Jennings. We're talking about immigration and adoption and citizenship rights. And before the break, um, Dr. McKee just kind of laid out a, a little bit of information about Korean adoption significance to international adoption to the US, um, also significance to immigration history. And I'm wondering too, um, you know, as I kind of set up our conversation today, I was mentioning how both adoption law and immigration law have really been approached separately. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and kind of what that might, what barriers or opportunities that might offer for citizenship right advocacy for immigrants today, whether adoptees or non-adoptees? So I'm happy to. I first also want to just tell your listeners that I'm not a legal scholar, rather I'm a, I'm a humanist. And so how I approach thinking about immigration law and adoption law is through thinking about immigration and adoption histories and the way in which sometimes they overlap and then sometimes they exist um, almost separately in silos. And this is partly because um, we didn't, we didn't, I mean, the United States didn't have a permanent policy around international adoption necessarily in terms of thinking about how it was going to handle not only the movement of Korean children, but even prior to that. So if you're thinking about um, the way the Displaced Persons Act of 1948 um, supported non-quota visas to orphan children, it was only 3,000 non-quota visas, and they only really were focused on select European countries, as well as um, the British, French, and American sectors from Germany and Austria, right? So it didn't even include Japan thinking about those children. And then those children were, mo were more often adopted by relatives. So by the time we get to this post-Korean War moment, when the US Congress passed the Refugee Relief Act, it did allow for, um, orphans to come over as long as they were younger than 10 years old um, to be adopted from the U to the United States by US citizens. And I realize I'm not getting into like sort of the minutia of the act um, because I'm pretty sure your listeners wouldn't want me to, <laughs> but I'm, I wanna highlight the fact though that when we see the Refugee Relief Act happening in 1953, it's not until um, 1961 with uh, the creation of the orphan visa, as well as um, the amendment around um, including international adoption as a permanent category in US immigration happening. So it's still a little patchwork, but at the same time, what's also important is the fact that adoption law is run through the state where adoptions are finalized and Im you know, immigration and citizenship is run at the federal level. Um, they're also prior to the um, seven, Prior to 1978, with an amendment to the Immigration and Naturalization Act, parents um, could not file for naturalization immediately. So before they had to wait two years before they filed for their child's naturalization. So 
that obviously impacted a lot of folks. There was concern. So in my own research for my for my book, Disrupting Kinship, I, I did find when I was looking at the archives that there was concern by adoption agency professionals about parents not naturalizing their children, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a deep concern for that. And yet we see that it even... So even if you're thinking about post-1978, okay, so parents are still told to naturalize them. Were they doing that? The onus is still on the parent because, and, and, and I think about this a lot because I think about the way in which white privilege functions and this idea that you're adopting your children mm-hmm. um, and assumptions that may be happening with that, but also thinking about the other stressors of parenthood. This is not to excuse those individuals who did not file the correct paperwork on behalf of their children. But also I think we have to complicate this from being kind of like a black or white understanding, but rather thinking about, okay, what happens with these processes? And I say that too, because with the Child Citizenship Act of 2000, so many people reference that for being sort of this catch-all guarantee um, to automatically confer citizenship to international adoptees, except for that it only applies to a small subset of those adopted, right? So it only applies to those who arrive on IR3 or IH3 visas. And that's key because not all children arrive to the United States who are adoptees on those visas. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, I'm sure you're gonna ask more about that later, so I'll stop there. Yes, you know, but you bring up so many good points here, Kim, because it's not simply, oh, parents um, are adopting and then automatically there's this citizenship conferral or automatically there is this inclusion in the U.S. Um, It's not the case for international adoptees. um, And there are a lot of laws and policies that make it difficult for parents to, you know, ensure even know their child's citizenship status. And for a lot of parents, I'm sure they weren't really thinking about citizenship, you know, in this way. And so we see, of course, how many folks have been impacted now um, with, you know, these varying numbers of potentially undocumented or potentially vulnerable adoptees. Um, Tanika, I'm wondering with your work, thinking about um, trying to get an Adoptee Citizenship Act and working with different legislators, how do you see some of these ideas of both immigrants and adoptees kind of coming into play as you're talking with folks trying to get their support um, on a bill? Like what are kind of our elected officials' understandings of adoptee citizenship rights, but also immigrant citizenship rights more broadly? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I just, you know, I just got off of another legislative visit um, this morning. Um, one, wow, how deep to go with the rabbit hole? <laughs> um, I just think, you know, these, our systems are so broken, right? Um, and the people making decisions, I mean, we can just start with the fact that oftentimes are not people who are at all impacted by these issues themselves. Um, and so one thing we always try to do when we have you know, outreach to elected offices is try to meet them where they're at and what kind of investment they have. Usually with a lot of the offices we reach out to, there's more likely to be an adoption related investment than there is to be a specifically like immigrant, you know, related um, kind of connection point. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's been really interesting. Um, you know, as an adoptee and an immigrant, it is hard <laughs> because I and we are, you know, I find and we find in this work, people are much more likely, like just like the systems and the history we've been talking about, more likely to accept the idea of um, supporting adoption than necessarily of supporting adoptees, particularly adult adoptees, because adult adoptees are seen as immigrants by the law. Um, and as people, we are no longer seen as being tied to our, for the most part, white US citizen parents, because we have aged out of that um, reality. So we're not the cute babies anymore that are being saved. Um, and it's so interesting to me how our, and, and so wrong, of course, but how our law makes that distinction and how in a typical immigration situation, it's the parents of the immigrant who are held responsible. It's the parents of the child who are held responsible. And therefore the child as a result of their parents who are usually, you know, oftentimes in these kind of situations, you know, people of color. And then in our situation, um, it's us who are held responsible. And it is, there's no responsibility um, of our US citizen parents um, after we turn 18 for us um, or for these things. And I just, it's just really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. So it's a tension that we have to hold together if we're going to meet with uh, members of congressional offices and really ask them to take action on this. Um, and for me, I find it pretty difficult because um, it's, you know, we want to be accepted. You, we want people to see our humanity in all of its fullness. Um, but the reality is oftentimes that's not the case, even for people who are supporting us um, on this bill or on this issue. Sineke, mm -hmm. you bring up an important point about how, you know, typically it's the white adoptive parents, right? They were talking about how white Americans, white adoptive parents aren't seen as responsible. They are completely kind of omitted from this. And it's the onus is put on adoptees, on undocumented immigrants to try to, you know, make the case that we deserve citizenship and we should be here. Um, I think at the very beginning of our conversation, Tanika, you mentioned the point that international adoptees should have already had citizenship. Um, that should have been something that was established in the beginning. And yet now we see adoptees having to, you know, prove or fight for something that should have been, you know, already included from the beginning. But I think this brings up how adoptees have always been seen as immigrants and separate from American citizens even though in a lot of ways, international adoptees have been framed as, oh, just children from abroad or children just joining their families. But here we see, you know, the, the limits of that framing. I just wanted to jump in because I, something that Tanika was saying and what in your response made me think about sort of the, how adoption, international adoption makes visible the tenuous nature of our kinship ties to our families. Mm -hmm. um, not only because, and I know, I myself identify as an immigrant. Tanika identified herself as an immigrant, but not all adoptees see themselves as immigrants and not all adoptive parents see their children as immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I, that's really important to underscore when we're starting to have conversations too about adoptee deportation um, and what that looks like. Because 
that is a label that even though some of us may claim, not all of us do. Um, and so what does that mean then when we're having these conversations around broader coalitions, but then to thinking about how the onus for obtaining naturalization for their child is, should be placed on those adoptive parents. But in the case of both, when you're thinking about Crapser and Green at least, um, as well as others, right? We have not mentioned the fact that not all adoptions are finalized. So we also have to really account for the way in which the state then fails adoptees by not ensuring that that proper paperwork gets filed for their naturalization because of disrupted adoption. Because that's the other thing. People like to think that adoption not only is the happy, better option, but that all of these families do the right thing and that none of these families end up disrupting those adoptions because it just doesn't work out for them. Mm -hmm. um, and because of the way uh, adoption is kind of marketed to adoptive parents as consumers, right? Where adoptees are again, objects. Although that language does not make people feel good. So we don't really tend to see it that way. But when you're disrupting an adoption, it, regardless of the reason, you're making very clear that that kinship tie was never as secure as it was supposed to be for folks. Absolutely. And I think that is what adoptee deportations, as you mentioned, kind of brings to the forefront um, is, you know, how these adoptions are not necessarily the forever families, right, that they're marketed as, and that these stories of whether it's uh, adoption disruptions or um, like it's portrayed in Blue Bayou, you know, uh, the multiple foster care placements, right, this, these are typically not conversations that are had when we're talking about adoption, and especially when we're talking about international adoption. So I think there are certain barriers that are embedded in kind of the histories of how we've talked about adoption when it comes to thinking about, okay, undocumented adoptees, and then also just the idea of adoptees are immigrants. Um, and we've been kind of in the US taught to think about adoptees as this special class of folks who migrate, but are not immigrants at all. Um, and so I'm wondering, Tanika, if you could talk a little bit more about some of the opportunities or even challenges to creating more coalitional um, politics among other immig immigrant groups that are fighting for citizenship rights. Um, I would imagine that because adoptees sometimes themselves don't see themselves as immigrants, that there might be barriers to um, creating kind of a co coalitional politics among adoptees themselves, but also other immigrant groups that might be thinking of adoptees as very distinct from the immigrant experience as well? Sure, that's a good question. Um, you know, to be honest, I haven't, you know, personally faced a lot of um, barriers to building coalition with other immigrant groups. Um, the barriers that um, I've witnessed tend to actually come from our adoptee community more often. And I think that many scholars like Dr. McKee and others, um, and I'm sure yourself, um, Sana, and your work too, have already written and talked a lot about this, but it's, it is that exceptionalism. And I think it's the, the reality that there are privileges that do, you know, it's a really complicated identity to have. Um, and there's privileges and disenfranchisements that are unique to us. And I think part of recognizing ourselves as immigrants is to see ourselves as part of that broader community and it begs a choice within each of us. Do we live into the privileges 
you know, in some ways that some of us have had, not all of us, but some of us have had, um, you know, just something as simple as speaking English fluently, you know, um, having, for some of us having access to good education or higher education, um, you know, things like that. Those are unique to the adoptee experience. Um, sometimes I think not, I, I don't want to misspeak. It's not that it's unique, but I think there are unique privileges that, you know, as a whole, as, as a trend, we can look at as a docu community. And I think identifying as an immigrant, you know, there's questions around race there. Um, what race are we? And I think not all adoptees recognize ourselves as people of color if we are not white um, and really struggle with that. Uh, I think it's a pretty common thing. So more of that um, challenge I think comes as much as I've experienced it from our adoptees ourselves, I think for others, there's just not that many of us um, in some ways too, and others may look at us as a privileged group of people too. So I don't necessarily feel like it's like we can't do this work together, but it's just, what is that goal? How strong is the connection that ties us together? Um, and I think that's where we all kind of have to look back at our history like we're doing today and see how we really have a common history and common roots to how we all got here in the US. And that's why the personal is political and that's why a systemic rooted problem only can have a systemic answer, right? Of course, everything's rooted in us as individuals and people as a community, but that's why we have to look at this all in a very systemic way, because at the end of the day, all of us who immigrated to the US came here for uh, in different ways for different reasons, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, for example, Korean adoptee, uh, Korean American immigrant, you know, from around the same decade. If you look at the forces driving each of those things, it was the same force. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM, and maybe you're listening on WYXR.org. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Kimberly McKee and Tanika Jennings. We've been talking about immigration and adoption and citizenship rights. And Tanika, before the break, you said, you know, we need systemic solutions to these systemic problems. And I love that because as we know, we cannot propose individual solutions and expect that these structural issues will then be resolved. And so I'm wondering if you could talk more about the Adoptee Citizenship Act, kind of what it aims to do and kind of where it is right now in terms of um, its progress and actually being enacted. Sure. So uh, Adoptee Citizenship Act, um, the way that we are talking about it is it's really a fix to um, the Child Citizenship Act, which was passed in 2001 um, or enacted in 2001. So Child Citizenship Act recognized, you know, as a legal precedent, the right of all, you know, inter-country adoptees to have citizenship by the very fact that we were adopted by US citizen parents. That doesn't preclude all of the challenges that Dr. McKee pointed out before with legislation. Um, again, you know, when you have such a big systemic hole and issue, um, it's hard to find the systemic solution that, you know, will actually address um, all of the challenges, in this case, lack of citizenship rights for adoptees. Um, so that law did pass, though. 
And right now, what we're trying to do is say, okay, that's great. Child Citizenship Act passed. Um, it was applied to people who were 18 and under at the time. Um, so anyone born 1983 and after, now we just want to make it retroactive and say that all inner country adoptees should have citizenship, not just people who are children. Um, so that's pretty much the long and the short of it. Um, it's pretty simple legislation. It's common sense legislation. It's legislation we think anyone should be able to get behind. Um, and right now it's sitting in the 117th Congress. We are currently amassing co-sponsors in the house. Um, we have a fully bipartisan bill um, at this time and we really wanna to continue to build it this way to really show people that this is an issue that all people should care about um, and be able to support. Um, and then the next step is once it amasses a certain number of co-sponsors, we wanna to try to advocate for it to get a hearing in the what is called House Judiciary Committee Immigration Subcommittee um, or House Judiciary Committee. Um, and then after that, uh, we wanna to try to move it forward in the Senate. So that's what we're up to. Uh, we are really looking at this window from now to the end of the year as a critical moment for us. The momentum is there. The diverse coalition is there in a way that we've never seen before. We've got co-sponsors, uh, bipartisan co-sponsorship in a way we haven't, you know, we've been building towards. And so this is the moment, um, you know, of course we'll keep fighting until it's passed, but this is a critical moment and a, one of the best moments, probably the best moment that we've had in a while to get it done. Um, so we're calling on everyone who's listening to your broadcast um, and everyone who's invested in any way or just cares about this issue to go ahead and send a letter of support to your Congress people. We've made it so easy. Um, Adoptees for Justice and NACASEC are a member of an alliance, uh, the Alliance for Adoptee Citizenship. And on their website, allianceforadopteecitizenship.org slash petition, there is a support letter. All you do is you fill in like your name basically, and I think one or two other details. And then this letter will go to your um, Congress people, your, you know, your senators, and just tell everyone that you're urging them to pass the Adoptee Citizenship Act now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tanika. Um, you mentioned that this is kind of one of uh, a critical moment and that you all have been able to garner a lot of support for this legislation. I know that, that it has been, you know, attempts have been made to introduce it in, of course, the past several years. And I'm wondering what about this moment, whether it's politically or, or maybe something else um, that has really enabled this legislation to get as far as it has gotten, you know, right now? Sure, um, that's a great question. I mean, I think we, you know, honestly, there's some, you know, parts of the politics that I don't, you know, feel like I, you know, need to necessarily go into too many details about. But one thing I will say is I think the pandemic um, has maybe, hopefully, <laughs> opened up people's hearts and minds. I think we've seen a lot of legislation pass. Um, supporting folks like even folks who don't have uh, legal status in the country that we haven't seen support for in the past. I think in moments of crisis, it's very clear what our country's values are and what we think of as the minimum standard of humanity um, that should, you know, just be guaranteed to each person, um, the minimum amount of security. And so I think it's a moment where people's hearts and minds are open um, and where we have had to come together in ways that we haven't previously just to deal with, you know, COVID-19. 
um, where people think a lot more about basic survival. Um, we, a lot of us have been pulled out of our very privileged existences into thinking about like, what does it mean to just like wake up every morning and try really hard to get to the next day? And I think the reality is that is the reality that adoptees without citizenship live in every single day. So I think it's a critical moment. I think there's more empathy um, and more compassion um, that we can share with each other. Um, and we really just need to move it uh, before we forget and before we get comfortable again and um, start siloing off again. Um, and really remember that there are people who are living like this all the time and that it's not right. And there's something really easy we can all do to fix it. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what might the passage of the Adoptee Citizenship Act mean or do for other um, citizenship rights, thinking about child migrants, other undocumented immigrants, how might this advance or contribute to kind of broader pushes for um, immigrant rights? And either of you can answer this. I think, um, and I, Tanika, I really appreciated listening to your response in terms of thinking about the Adoptee Citizenship Act. I think, at least for me, um, and how I look at what has been done to adoptees and so thinking about um, the way in which I believe, so I'm speaking on behalf of myself, that when we talk about retroactive citizenship for adoptees, we need to be situating this within uh, broader conversations around campaigns for citizenship for all. Um, because to exceptionalize adoptees as this distinct class of people um, overlooks the way in which adoptees are rendered just another person of color as adults, right? It relies on fetishizing adoptees and adoption um, as children in particular ways in terms of the inclusiveness within ostensibly sort of that the white, and here I'm using that in parentheses, white American family, Right? And so thinking about what that means when we try to exceptionalize adoptees, I think by mobilizing, um, and again, I'm speaking on behalf of myself and not for anyone else. Um, I think when we talk about um, obtaining citizenship for adoptees and, and what that looks like, I think part of that conversation through talking about the ACA needs to be, well, then how can we leverage that for those next moments? Um, how can we leverage that to also support campaigns for citizenship for all? And how can we use the privilege that I know both Tanika and I have gestured towards that adoptees have access to, and this is not to say not all adoptees do, but thinking about us again as a sort of a broader collective, what can we do to sort of really move the needle forward? Um, so thinking about how this should be one step, right? To sort of more comprehensive changes to how we understand immigration to the US, um, as well as thinking, to be honest, about adoption, because immigration and adoption law should not be seen as sort of divorced from one another. They need to be seen in conversation with one another. And while I know there have been some folks who have seen sort of um, and talked about, and I write about this in my book, the uh, Adoptive Citizenship Act as being sort of an adoption law, I see it as fundamentally as both, mm -hmm. because it really, um, in my mind, is helping change what it looks like to be an adopted person as an adult um, and really recognizing that for as adult adoptees, we're not the cute kids that came over um, that were that people were really excited about because again, we're seen as people of color. 
um, for those of us who are non-white. And what does that mean then when, how that affects all of our interactions with the world, including with the criminal justice system, which I'm sure you can have a separate whole conversation about that, right? But also how we're seeing just negotiating the world more broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, well, Tanika, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you wanted to jump in with any response here. I mean, I really appreciate um, Kim, uh, Dr. Kimberly McKee, uh, bringing up the um, citizenship for all because, you know, I think for adoptees for justice in Nakasak, that is, you know, we situate this campaign within citizenship for all. Um, so citizenship for all adoptees, you know, is really based on the same principles values and understanding of ourselves as people um, as citizenship for all. Um, And that citizenship is really, um, and this has been a really interesting thing for me to kind of just grapple with over the years, but that citizenship is not really about a piece of paper. Um, That piece of paper, you know, naturalization, paperwork signifies something, right? It signifies access to critical support when you need it the ability to stay with your family and know that you're not going to be separated from them. You know, um, dignity, respect, um, the ability to fully participate civically in your community that you're a part of every day anyways. Um, And to make changes for what you believe is right um, in the country that we all live in. And so that's really what we believe Citizenship for All is about. Um, And it's just so much broader than any one single person or any one single issue. And again, it's about what is the basic humanity um, that we are all deserving of, the basic safety and security. So that's something that touches adoption law, it touches immigration law. um, And it's something if we open our minds to, you know, our minds and our hearts to that reality, you know, we could make a lot of changes, um, you know, broader systemically in our communities individually um, that, you know, could do a lot of good for us in future generations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think you both bring up important points while we're talking about, you know, legislation that might legally certify adoptees citizenship in the U.S. It really is about this broader conversation of who is even seen as a citizen, whether that's with, you know, legal documentation or not, who is seen as really part of this American experience and adoptees, you know, throughout international adoptees throughout our lives, especially for those of us who are folks of color, we experience exclusions throughout, not just these legal exclusions as we're seeing now, but also just the ways that we're made to feel, you know, not quite American and like we don't belong. Kim, I wanted to ask you, you know, thinking about histories of international adoption, um, how does this ACA, how does Adoptee Citizenship Act, how would this legislation maybe change or alter the trajectory of international adoption and how we're thinking about adoptees or not, right, as we're thinking about here in this case, acknowledging the fact that international adoptees are, in fact, immigrants, um, would this passage of this legislation change anything about how we're thinking about international adoptees or even maybe other changes to adoption legislation moving forward? I think when we're talking about international adoption currently, um, I don't think it's going to end. And I think even while you see some factions within the adoption industry bemoaning, you know, quote unquote, the decline in these numbers, 
it's not going to stop because I think the reframing actually needs to be is how are we supporting family preservation and precarious families to keep um, in, in sort of children's countries of origin, mm-hmm. right? And so when thinking then in terms of, well, how does that inform either the ACA or how we understand international adoption and bringing children over, um, you know, I, I, I think we need to think about how can we best support those children um, who, who end up being adopted. Mm-hmm. So it's how can we look at the systemic issues um, that sort of are pervasive uh, in what I call the transnational adoption industrial complex. How can we look at the pervasive sort of issues and gaps and the lack of protections for adoptees? Um, this isn't to say that I think the ACA is going to fix all of the things. I hope it fixes you know, the, the things that have been broken that Tanika has gestured toward to throughout this entire conversation today. Um, but I also hope that just the activism from Adoptees for Justice, from NACASAC, from these other organizations are really raising the issue about the, um, to be honest, the dereliction and the wrongs um, of, of duty that adoptive parents and the state have failed many adoptees. And it's not just thinking about international adoption, it's also thinking about the way in which sometimes the state fails domestic adoptees as well, um, as well as those in foster care. And I'm hoping that, again, we need to have more nuance and really understand these issues as being incredibly complex. Um, I think unfortunately, as part of these conversations around the ACA, as well as other adoptee activism, it's it's very easy to try to be simplistic. It's very easy to try to go for that easy soundbite. And I'm hoping that like conversations like these and for folks listening today, we really are at least encouraging people to have a more complex, nuanced understanding to really sit with the tensions of what it means to be an adult adopted person, what it means to situate adoption within broader conversations for either citizenship for all or just immigration history. Um, And so perhaps I didn't answer your question, but I think for me at least, when we're having discussions about what's going on um, with the work of A4J and other adult adoptee organizations, it's really, again, pushing people to be able to hold sort of a both and perspective than this sort of either or black or white understanding of adoption. I think a lot of what we're talking about here exists in that gray area, or at least exists within the contradictions produced by adoption broadly. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, you know, everything you said, I think that sums up like why why this conversation is happening, but also sums up some of the challenges that folks have when approaching you know, issues of immigration, issues particularly of undocumented adoptees, because we're kind of taught in a lot of ways to approach any big issue as this kind of either or or black and white, as if there is, you know, a firm right or wrong or, or one way to look at these issues when they are, in fact, extremely complex. And there are so many um, multiple layers that we have to think about um, as you out as you outlined. 
Um, now, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together this morning, but I wanted to give each of you the opportunity if there are some closing thoughts or even some calls to action that you wanted to leave our listeners with this morning. I know we've talked a lot about you know adoption, about immigration, and about really trying to bring some nuance to these conversations around particularly undocumented migrants. So I wanted to give y'all a chance to kind of leave us with some closing thoughts. And Tanika, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, for me that, um, you know, depending on the listener, I think maybe it's a different journey that people are on. But to me, one really critical thing that we keep talking about today, and I appreciate you both a lot um, for, you know, um, inviting me to this be part of this conversation with you is just recognizing, again, going back that a systemic issue has must have a systemic solution and that that can play out at all different levels. It can play out in, in, with individuals, families, communities, policies, programs, um, government, you know, like any, you know, private, public, whatever partnerships that can be had, but that our lens has to be broader. And I think that that's where a lot of this like black and white kind of thinking comes from is the idea that when we as adoptees, as immigrants, people of color, women, whoever are given, I've heard people say this sometimes, but you know, and I know it might anger others, but this analogy of scraps at the table, right? When we've been told your humanity only fits into this little box and that's what you get. And then we have to, we work within that box to try to figure out what are the right and the wrong answers here to a specific issue that comes up. It could be something like this film that came out or whatever. That of course, we're gonna feel unhappy, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just gonna feel unsatisfying. But the reality is we don't have to work in the box that's been given to us. We can think outside of the box and we have to remember that that box was created intentionally to keep us there so that we won't demand our full humanity. And so if we broaden it and we say, what is the world as it should be? Then we could really look at, well, what is this? What is actually the right solution here? And stop thinking about it. Like we have to start with what, you know, white supremacy, for example, is willing to give us, willing to say that we deserve, you know, it, you know representation is not enough. I'm not sorry, that's not enough. You know, and it's not right to harm someone, you know, in order for you to, you know, in order for someone to, you know, gain or even our community to gain exposure. You know, how many times has that already been done to us? Right. And so we just have to like just remember that the solution has to be systemic, it has to be broad, and then let that inform how we um, interact with the individual in the community level. And I have to say, I can't say I'm great at it, <laughs> but it's like the challenge that like, I feel like we wake up with every day as people who can recognize and understand that we share some marginalized or oppressed identity and some history that you know we haven't had control over. I think we can just, I challenge myself. I think we can just keep challenging each other to do that. Um, and if we do that, we can keep moving the needle at least within our community um, and we can, you know, live to fight another day. Absolutely. Yes. Dr. McKee, any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with this morning? 
as we're thinking about the way in which adoption is so tied to broader sort of immigration streams to the United States, but also thinking about um, the how the experiences of undocumented adoptees are very much aligned with other folks who are undocumented. Um, part of that conversation too, I, I really encourage folks to look at the policies that laid the groundwork causing these people to be eligible for deportation in a variety of communities, right? I think so often we're talking about issues of citizenship, but we also have to look at the legislation that um, really allowed for these draconian deportation provisions and what that looks like, right? So go back to the 90s, go back to 1996. At the same time, having these conversations and as folks are thinking about the Child Citizenship Act of 2000, again, really being mindful about who is or and who is not covered under that? And what does it mean for those folks, for those adoptees who are brought over on other visas or even through humanitarian parole, what that looks like? And then I think finally, you know, I really hope that people see this as a moment to understand the need for a stronger coalitional politic. Um, so not just between adoptees and other immigrant groups, but also thinking about how adoptees are people of color. And I realize that some folks may not identify as a person of color or for some say in the case of uh, adoptees from Asia, maybe within the last year and a half has been the first time they've been politicized as Asian Americans, um, given the rise in anti-Asian racism. But again, thinking about the need for us to work in coalition to create change, because to get to Tanika's point about when they give us scraps, but you know, like, what does that mean if we're not thinking about, well, how can we leverage our collective, not just expertise, but our collective activism to really engender some change and make sort of more positive inroads in terms of what we need to be doing to make not just the lives of one group better, but the lives of everyone better. Um, or at least to even just recognize the humanity of folks. Because yeah, I think something that we've seen um, is the fact that not everybody has that same understanding or the same level of empathy to see other people as humans in need of care. Um, because so often we like to think of people being either deserving or undeserving, and that should not be what's guiding policy. In fact, we really need to be having more nuance and care to think about how can we find the humanity in everyone? Because by doing that, we're actually going to be making a bigger and more impactful difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for both of you joining us this morning. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you again to Dr. Kimberly McKee and Tanika Jennings for joining us this morning. Such an important conversation about immigration, about adoption, and about adoptee citizenship rights. You know, I hope you are able to get a little bit of the, the nuance of these very important topics. And as I think it was Dr. McKee mentioned, there is no black and white. There's a lot of gray. And sometimes we have to get comfortable in being in those gray areas. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this reminder, as Dr. McKee mentioned, um, empathy and Tanika talked about, you know, building coalitions um, with 
one another across different communities. I just wanted to remind you to see the light in each other and be the light for each other. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Remember, you can tune in wherever you are and at any time on WYXR.org. And of course, subscribe and like the show in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. I can't wait to join you all again next Monday.